ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The fossil records tell us that long, 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 long ago, the lands and waters of Australia were inhabited by supersized versions of today's animals. There was a gigantic lizard, Megalania, that was said to be seven metres long. There was a giant kangaroo and a massive wombat called a diprotodon. And there was a big shark. And when I say big, I mean something more than an extra-large great white. This shark, called a megalodon, was much, much bigger than that. More than twice as big as the whales it used to hunt. Megalodon was simply the biggest predator that ever lived on this planet. Megalodon means giant tooth, and the massive fossilised teeth of these monsters have been highly prized throughout human history. When Tim Flannery was a teenager, Tim found some of these huge teeth in the waters of Port Phillip Bay in suburban Melbourne. Tim Flannery is, of course, a paleontologist, an explorer and a former Australian of the Year. And Tim's co-written a book with his daughter, Emma Flannery, who's also a scientist and a writer, and the book is called Big Meg, the story of the largest and most mysterious predator that ever lived. Welcome back, Tim. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be with you. I think this is the most fun book of yours I've read. I really enjoyed it. The story begins for you in 1973 when you were in your teens. Why was 1973? Can you explain why that was such a golden year for fossil hunters like yourself? Look, it was a great year for me because it was the wettest year in living memory in Australia. And um, Lake Eyre filled, all of the rivers were flowing a banker. And in Western Victoria, which was my kind of happy hunting ground, I love volcanoes and all the rest of it. So I had a motorbike at that stage. I was down there a little bit. And um, the, the creek where you could find fossils was well contained lots of fossils had been really scoured out. And all of this fresh rock had been exposed. And so I was like a kid in a candy shop as a fossil hunter, you know. I went down there and there was all this wonderful stuff and picking up fossils. I walked down the bank and I just remember seeing a a little pebble bank that had been left by the flood and in the middle of it, in the shallow water, there was this big triangular-shaped object. And I thought of, looked at it, I thought, it can't be. And I walked down and picked it up and out of the water came this beautiful mahogany-coloured tooth. And how big was it? It was as big as the palm of my hand. It was huge. There was just one small corner missing and I remember picking it up and thinking, I- I'm in a dream. This can't be real. I've- I'm holding the tooth of the megalodon shark. You knew what it was? I did. I Look, I was one of those nerdy kids who had read everything that <laughs> was ever written about fossils. You read all the how and why books. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was in the how and why books. It was an illustration there I still remember. And uh, But to think I had actually found one of these things was just truly extraordinary. And, and was it just lying there or was, or was it actually embedded in rock? Or It was just lying there on top of the shingle. Like a present? Yeah, you. like a present. The You know, the creek must have really gathered everything out, laid down this pebble bank and then in its last push really, the flood, it must have loosened this tooth from the sediment in the side of the creek and just deposited it there. You must have stared at that thing really hard. What kind of little details? Did it have like a little serrated edge on, on it at it any had point? a beautiful serrated edge that you still had to be a little bit careful of because it could cut you. I mean, these teeth 
were sharp for a purpose. You know, they were there to tear through flesh. So even 10 million years later for this tooth, you had to be just a little bit careful. 10 million years later? Yeah, yeah. It was it, 10, this was a 10 million year old giant shark's tooth. It was. And just to put it in context, Richard, the place I found it was a creek bed in Western Victoria, nearly 100 kilometres from the sea. So you, you can imagine that wonder of walking down through that lovely red red gum woodland and grassland down into this creek and finding this this thing that had been waiting there for me for 10 million years, perhaps. <laughs> you know, because when I think about the history of it, that the, the, the shark had to lose a tooth for some reason. It had to fall into the sediment and be buried, uh, deeply buried in the earth. And then all of those sediments had to be uplifted. A creek had to cut a particular course through the landscape just down to the right level, and then we had to have an unprecedented flood year when I was actually out there as a teenager looking for fossils. So the chances of me and the tooth meeting were, were impossible to calculate. You can get pretty gloomy as a teenager. This was like a present that was millions of years in its arrival right at your feet. It must have made you feel happy and lucky. Look, it really did, and in some way I guess it just hit me at a very formative moment in my my youth, you know. Um, it came to symbolise good fortune for me, you know, and I remember dreaming at night of, of walking on a beach where there was just dozens of these teeth, you know, and waking up immensely happy at the thought, you know, the, of the good fortune of finding this thing. And, of, of course, it didn't stop there, Richard. I kept looking and uh, I was very fortunate that during my early years I found two other teeth. This, this first tooth you found... You said it was mahogany, not white. Why, why would it have been mahogany? Well, the, the sediments that, that the fossil was preserved in had, had a lot of phosphate in them for whatever reason. Presumably there was phosphate coming off the rocks that were feeding into the ocean there. And phosphate tends to bind to bone and teeth and, and, and stain them a beautiful dark brown. In this case, the enamel was this lovely mahogany colour. Could you have had any idea of how that tooth came to be there? Do such teeth just simply fall out of a shark's mouth? Or how do you think this tooth might have come to be in that spot where you found it? Well, it's interesting because many... I keep on going back to that spot. I take my children there to have a look and whatever. And, and in 2019, we went back and we found the skull of a whale eroding out of the bank there. Um, and whales, when they die, attract sharks. <laughs> so uh, we took the skull into the Museum of Victoria and donated it to the museum and they told us it was a kind of primitive kind of right whale. But I can imagine that shark feeding off the carcass, perhaps losing a tooth, you know, because shark's teeth are regularly shed from the mouth as, the, as they get damaged uh, and, and aged, and the tooth just falling into the sediment, presumably somewhere near that shark, and then being transported a few metres downstream to the pebble bank where I found it. Was it possible to imagine that scene? You're standing in the middle of a forest and a riverbed in Victoria of being underwater in that very spot of... Uh, vastly huge shark, impossibly huge shark, feasting on the carcass of a whale. I wonder if it could have been hunting it. Could it have killed it, I wonder? Look, it's possible. The trouble with paleontology, Richard, is we can't, we rarely see those moments preserved, you know. This is we 10 million years ago after all. Exactly. We yeah. can find the bite mark of a tooth on a bone, but was the whale alive or not when that happened? It, you know, you've got to have exceptional circumstances to, to decide that, and we, we unfortunately in this case didn't have that. But what I can tell you is that the shark would have been probably larger than that whale, you know, and those 
gigantic sharks, impossible to imagine the size of them. They did eat whales or scavenge on whales, but we know from the chemical signature of the teeth they must have principally eaten other food. Do you still have this lucky tooth? I do. <laughs> I donated almost all of the fossils I found over the years to the museum. So but it's this going one lucky tooth went straight mine. to the pool it's room. A keeper. Did it? Yeah, right. <laughs> it is. No, it's very special for me. It's a, yeah. Did this giant shark, the megalodon, coexist with humans? It looked not with Homo sapiens, but with our lineage, almost certainly. It, it's very difficult to know when the shark became extinct, but by about three and a half million years ago, when that's a roundabout when it probably was seeing its last, uh, there was our ancestors, the Australopithecines in Africa, and they would have, they were certainly in southern Africa, they almost certainly would have seen that shark because if they were living around the coast. You know, you can imagine a scene where uh, there's a group of whales, perhaps in trouble on the coast, perhaps with a wounded individual, and this gigantic shark coming up. And it's bigger than the whales. Way bigger than the whales. I mean, just to give you an idea of how big this shark is, a really big great white shark, maybe two and a quarter tonnes. This thing weighed 60 tonnes. 60 tonnes. You know, so 30 orca, times as heavy yeah, an orca as a great white. weighs six or seven tonnes against 60 tonnes. This is 10 times bigger than an orca. You know, it kind of, it beggars imagination to think how such a gigantic animal could have existed. You know, the, the biggest teeth of this shark weigh well over a kilogram and are as long as the palm of your hand. I mean, it, it, the scale is the thing that completely uh, flabbergasts me. Can we imagine how long they were from, from nose to tip? The trouble with sharks is that their skeleton is made of cartilage. So we have very little direct evidence, but extrapolations suggest that it's perhaps 16 metres long, perhaps even a bit longer. But, you know, that's a, it's an enormously large animal. If we can put ourselves in the mind of an Australopithecus standing on the shore yeah. watching one of these yeah. monsters attack a whale, hunt yeah. and kill a whale, what, what do you imagine that scene might have looked like? I think the shark would have appeared on the horizon. It's clearly attracted to a whale. But then it would have disappeared because predators, no matter how big and ferocious they are, are always somewhat cautious underwater. And then maybe an attack from below, just as we see with these great whites, and an explosion at the surface where this whale would effectively disintegrate even a, a six, seven, eight metre long whale. What do you mean? Like it would have hit it like a road train or something? Yeah, from below. Boom. And the, 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 the bite... Would pulverise it like that? Well, the, the bite was so powerful, it, it's, it's 180,000 newtons, which is the way we measure bite force. I mean, that's, that's ten times as much as a Tyrannosaurus. It's, it's huge. It had ten times the bite of a T-Rex? Yes. It, the power of the, the bite was, it was by far the largest a Newton force, the, the most powerful bite. So, so for a whale existed. to encounter this, it would have been like being hit by a combination of a road train and a tree shredder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you don't want to take a risk if you're a predator. You just whammo, go in and kill this thing. God, and there would have been like blood and guts in the air and everything. It would yeah, have been like a, yeah. an extraordinarily horrifying scene. And you can imagine our distant ancestors watching this learning because you, you know how... Birds, if there's a, a wounded bird or a bird attacked by a predator, all the other birds watch because they want to know how to avoid that fate in future. Our ancestors, I'm sure, would have been the same. They would have watched very, very carefully because that lesson in predation may one day save your life. Do you think human beings retain some kind of distant ancestral memory of ancestral fear in our lizard brains of such gigantic 
creatures? Look, I believe so, Richard. That is a hard idea to test scientifically. But, you know, if you think about our nightmares and the kind of monsters that, that people our nightmares, they're large, flesh-eating predators quite often. You know, they're things that that really play off that fear of being eaten alive, which was very real for most of the time we've been on Earth. I mean, we know from the leopards, leopards can kill even even gorillas. I mean, they would have specialised in hunting our relatively feeble ancestors, you know. There's something it's, special about sharks, though, isn't there? For example, we could be mauled to death and eaten alive by a bear, but bears are kind of adorable well, looking. Well, exactly, and but leopards shark, are the same. But yeah. Sharks seem to project this, and this is, well, no, yeah. they don't project, we project on them, yeah. this, this apprehension we have from that unblinked, that strange eye that they have, that they're somehow evil. And, of course, they're not. They're just no. like us. They just want to have a feed and have babies most of the time, don't they? I mean, they do. And, of yeah. course, they come out of nowhere, what looks like nowhere yes. to us, the opaque ocean, you know. And, and the other thing that's really striking is that they, they get you when you're at your leisure. So you go to the beach to relax, have a swim, enjoy yourself. And that's when the danger is most terrifying. It's unexpected. <laughs> so it's kind of doubly disconcerting for us humans, uh, the thought of being eaten alive by a shark. Would this megalodon have had its teeth set in its mouth like a great white in or what, rose? How would it, what do you know about that? Yeah, look, the, 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 the jaws were probably you know, two odd metres wide, maybe oh, more. Uh, there's 276 teeth in the jaw uh, set in, in, in four deep, rows four deep, because the teeth are constantly being replaced. So, yes, it's somewhat like a great white, but these teeth are so much oversized compared with a great white, it's sort of, it's hard to make that comparison. Have you seen the jaws of these creatures? Do they exist or have they, they just rotted away? No jaw has yet been found. One day, I think a jaw will be found. We've found the individual teeth. We've found piles of teeth where the jaws have rotted away, leaving a pile. And we've found, remarkably, some vertebrae, centrum of vertebrae, which tell us a little bit about the way the shark lived. If it had encountered somehow a swimming poor old Australopithecus or, or a modern human, in fact, if, if, if it had encountered such a thing, would it have needed to maul a human to eat it or could it just have swallowed a human whole? An adult would have just swallowed a human without chewing, I think. It's just, it's, you know, the jaws are so big and the teeth are so enormous and we're so tiny by comparison. We'd we just be like just, little fish, would we? Yeah, just a little bit of plankton, a little bit of fish going down. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I, you know, maybe a young one would have would have perhaps eaten us. But they were born large, so, you know, even then, even a newborn megalodon would have been a threat. How high would its dorsal fin have sat Oh, do you know, I'd love to know, I'd love to see, but um, we can only extrapolate because, again, it's cartilaginous, but at least two metres high. You know, this is a huge fin because this is a so very taller able than predator. Me. Yes, taller than you. It's, it's a very able predator. It's got to be able to move through the, through the ocean with speed and accuracy. So you need a big fin to do that. So I, my, my guess is that it's at least two metres high. As you say, the bite of this giant shark was more powerful than a T-Rex. It's often said that a T-Rex had a bite enough to hard enough to crush a car. Yeah. You say it could have actually completely pulverised a car, the, this, yeah. this, this, this beast. Why would it have needed that kind of power? To attack others of its kind? Oh, you know, this is a question that, that scientists have, have been mulling for some time now. There are no real clear answers. This, as again, with so much of this creature, it's a mystery. But what we've found is that the chemical 
signature in the, the teeth suggests that it was this animal lived very high up the food chain, that it was at the top of the food pyramid, and it may have been a hypercarnivore, so something which was eating other carnivores. So it, it may have been living off other sharks or even its own young. We, we, we don't know. Um, but, you know, if you're eating other sharks, which are very capable predators themselves, you need to have a decisive weapon in your armoury. And that decisive <laughs> weapon may have been this super bite that just completely disables your prey at a, at a stroke. You say we know so little of them because they're mainly, mainly cartilage and cartilage doesn't preserve as well as, as bone does. Why would that be a weakness in a shark to be made of cartilage? I know it's more lightweight, but what, what advantages does yeah. a shark get from being largely uh, composed of cartilage vertebrae? You know, for, for many years it was believed that cartilage was a sort of a primitive precursor to bone, but that's since been shown to be incorrect. And, in fact, the earliest sharks did have a, a partly bony skeleton, which then became fully cartilaginous. And the reason that, that we think cartilage was such an advantage for sharks is, one, it's light, you don't need to carry as much weight around so it makes you faster. But second, it, it has tensile strength in a way that lets you whip your body through the water much more powerfully. Or oh, is it so more springy or something? Springy, exactly. So it's got this tensile strength that allows you to swim much more efficiently. So do we imagine this creature would have been able to swim at similar speeds as a great white, for example, then? Oh, Probably. I mean, it's hard to know what the force of the water pushing against such an enormous creature would have meant. But I, I think there's no doubt it was fast. I mean, it's preying off other sharks. It has to be faster. Like, you look at modern predators, they've got to be, you know, faster than most. You mentioned there that a jaw has yet to be found of this, this creature. How, how close... Is it possible that we could one day find a complete fossil body of a megalodon? I'm convinced that that fossil body exists out there somewhere. And the place I'd start looking, if I was a young paleontologist, is the Herrero Formation in, in, uh, on the Pacific coast of South America. And, you know, there we find whole flotillas of stranded whales, the skeletons, you know, in perfect order, all laid out. And often um, not just one layer but many layers, which suggest the whales are continually stranding at the same place. We've also found a, a nearly complete phosphatized skeleton of the ancestor of the great white shark. And that is a beautiful fossil. It's an extraordinary thing, found by an olive grower quite accidentally in 1988, but carefully excavated by experts. Uh, so that megalodon is out there, that skeleton. Um, one day someone's going to be walking across that desert landscape with its eerie kind of features of fossilised whales and so forth, and they'll see a little tip of a tooth sticking up from the dust. Out of a cliff wall or something maybe or out just of the floor? On the, maybe just on the floor and they'll start brushing away at it and next to it will be another one. What would that mean? What would it mean to you if that that complete fossil body were oh. to be found? Well, can you imagine, Richard, being for just a moment the only person in the world who knows precisely what the greatest predator that ever lived was like? This is the discovery. The discovery of fossils is wonderful like this because you can be, for a certain time, the only person who knows something till you choose to share that knowledge. Can such a fossil or fossils today that are that old, some 10 million years old or thereabouts, give us any information on what these sharks were eating? Well, it can. As I, as I mentioned earlier, there's been some recent studies, only a year or two old, looking at the chemical composition, particularly the, the nitrogen competition in a composition in these teeth, so looking at the isotopes 
of nitrogen. And they suggest that the, the, the megalodon shark was eating something that no living shark eats. It's just too high up the food pyramid. You know, it, you couldn't get that particular isotopic composition of nitrogen from eating whales, for example, because they eat plankton, most of the whales. This thing was eating other predators. So you know, it has this extraordinary concentration of, of this isotope of nitrogen. And it, you, know, you wonder how could that be? Um, you know, some fish in the ocean today survive by eating their own young. You know, so tuna are like that. So they, 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 they lay eggs, the eggs eat plankton and produce very small tuna and then the next line of tuna eat those tuna until the adults are finally eating. Their oh, my own. word, nature's an unsentimental thing sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> when it comes to sharks, it is completely unsentimental. <laughs> completely so. I, I heard a theory, and this is about 20 years ago, and I don't know how true it is because I'm not a scientist, as you will know, Tim, but I, I heard there was a theory because there's still so much we don't know about sharks in general. Yeah. They're very hard to observe. I think you write that sharks have very rarely been observed mating, for example, and even after all these years. But I, I, I read a theory that sharks don't really effectively age. They don't experience senescence. They don't get old and decrepit. Eventually they perish from the hazards of living in the wild or they die of hunger or something like that. What do you know about that, Tim? Well, look, they, they do. Some species do just continue to grow through life. So, you know, great whites are a bit like that. They just keep on getting bigger. So they're just like perpetual adolescence then, are they? They just get bigger oh. and bigger and keep growing. I don't know if that's probably a good analogy, yeah. but, but well, they just keep getting bigger and older, do they? Yeah, and they seem to remain reproductive um, uh, through their life. The, the, as you get bigger, though, and, and thicker, particularly because these sharks tend to get thicker quicker than they get longer. You know, so you look at a, a, a really big great white today and they are, you know, the girth of them is what strikes you, you know, like a VW in the water in terms of the girth. <laughs> I once saw some great whites off, off South Australia actually attacking a whale carcass and one of those great whites was like, it was just enormous girth. But, um, you know, the, the thing about them is, of course, you don't have the flexibility to catch your normal prey. So the great whites we see off South Africa that are catching seals, that requires quite a bit of agility. And these great big old great whites don't really have that option. So we think they particularly uh, feed on the carcasses of dead whales and that's how they sustain themselves. Tell me what we know now about shark vertebrae, what they can reveal, like looking at the layering of shark vertebrae, what that tells us about the beast. Look, again, really exciting discoveries made during the COVID times, actually, about this. Um, someone uh, had realised that one of the Belgian museums had a, a series of vertebrae that were collected in 1865 and been kept in the museum ever since, thankfully not thrown out, um, and they CT scanned them. And we could see that the, the vertebrae grew in like a tree rings, in rings, one thick ring and one thin ring. So presumably there was a seasonal abundance of food for these great white sharks uh, or these um, megalodon sharks, I should say. So, so, so they, during, during the, the good feeding season, they'd get a thick ring yeah. around the vertebrae and then the lean season, what, every half year or so, we'd imagine, would yes. get a thinner ring. That's right, yeah. So looking at that, we could work out that the shark, when it died, was 46 years old and nine metres long. <laughs> Not a big one. Shark dendrochronology. Is this Absolutely. <laughs> there's so much to discover. This is what the glory of this stuff of paleontology. We know so little and there's so much more to discover. You mentioned that these megalodon were very likely very big at birth. When you say big at birth, I keep keep asking you this question, I know, but how big are we talking about here, do you oh, imagine? Look, like several metres. They're, oh. they're large. <laughs> you know, the teeth the teeth of the newborns, we think, you know, they're, they're, as, they're as long as 
two thirds of my thumb. So, so the pups that they gave birth to were as big as what we'd call a big shark, an adult shark in many ways today. But two metres is pretty long. I mean, oh, well, yeah. That's not a big shark, I suppose. But nonetheless, enough to alarm you if it swam by you. The, this I, is a baby, right? I wouldn't want to be in the water with one. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you think these large pups might, uh, the, the size of these pups, might indicate something called intrauterine cannibalism. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah, look, many sharks uh, have this or, or some aspect of this particular behaviour called intrauterine cannibalism. And uh, it's there to make sure that some young survive to a viable stage before they're born. So usually what happens is, you know, the, the mother will lay a lot of eggs into the uterus. Uh, the first hatched will eat the other eggs until it's big enough to get out. In, in the shark? Inside shark, the uterus. The the, the, in the womb, yeah. Right. So it'll eat its siblings in the womb until... There's kind of one survivor who's the big one that can be born. And, you know, other sharks, the eggs will hatch and the young will fight it out in the womb and one will end up consuming all of its, its siblings and that will be the one that's viable at birth. They've got to get... See, the problem is they don't have a, a placenta like we do. They can't feed the young as we do. So they've got to find another means of feeding the young, particularly when there's a pressure for a shark to be born at a particular size, an evolutionary pressure. And for the bigger sharks, you, know, you have to be born at a large size to be an effective predator and to avoid predation yourself. So these shark embryos, or they, they, they fight for the right to exist. It's a contest for the strongest and fittest that takes place in the womb that gives that, that embryo the right to be born into this world. Yep, it is. And pretty gruesome when you think of eating your brothers and sisters alive in your, in your mother's womb. But, um, but that's the world of sharks. And this would have given this pup enormous advantages in the world then. It's ready to go then. It is. It's big enough to survive, you know, because young sharks are eaten sometimes by other sharks and other, other creatures. Um, they've obviously got to then feed as well and you've got a big predatory shark. Obviously, the bigger it is, the better chance it's got of finding prey. Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Did Megalodon, it didn't coexist with humans, as you say, it, it coexisted with some of our ancestors. Did it coexist with the dinosaurs or did it, or did it come after the dinosaurs, Tim? No, it's way after the dinosaurs. In fact, you know, the, the strange thing is, Richard, we know a lot more about the dinosaurs than we know about Megalodon. It's, uh, you know, even though they're so old, and we, we don't even know exactly when Megalodon went extinct, but its lineage really starts probably about 50 million years ago. Um, once the dinosaurs are extinct and, you know, the, all of the plesiosaurs are gone from the ocean, and there's a, a niche vacancy for a big predator. Right. Had there been sharks in the world during the dinosaur period that this evolved from? There, there had been sharks. In fact, that lineage was present uh, during the time of the dinosaurs, but they were relatively small sharks. They're probably you know, half the size of great whites um, because the, the marine reptiles were really took over the top predator niche and occupied it pretty efficiently. So it was only with their extinction 66 million years ago that the sharks got a bit of a second wind. And, you know, we can think of the modern era as much as the age of sharks as we can the age of mammals because the sharks really took off once the reptiles were out of the way. I think I'm used to imagining what would have happened to the Earth when that gigantic meteor crashed into the planet that 
made the dinosaurs extinct. The effect would have had the the explosiveness, the depth of the crater, the vast wildfires, the shroud on the earth. But I've never thought about how it might have impacted the world's oceans. How how might we imagine that to have happened? Oh, look, it was a catastrophic uh, impact on the oceans. Um, Photosynthesis was cut off. And of course, in the oceans, the photosynthetic entities like uh, algae, they can't survive for very long without sunlight. Whereas on land, trees can go into their winter recess and whatever and survive. But So the, the impact on productivity in the oceans was huge and we lost all of the, the kind of surface fauna, you know, the ammonites and this sort of thing. Uh, and, of course, the large reptiles, marine reptiles that were at the top of the food chain. Scavengers, though, did okay. And the sharks were as much scavengers as they were. All those corpses. Exactly, all those corpses. <laughs> and um, whatever washed in from the rivers, you know, because the rivers and lakes of the world were a bit protected because the food chain after the extinction event was still supported by detritivores. There was a lot of plant matter that was in rivers and lakes and so there was a food chain that started with those detritivores and went on to turtles and crocodiles and and so forth and things were still washing into the ocean from river mouths that would have kept the scavengers going. So then the sharks evolve into these supermassive sharks, megalodon. A supergiant shark would have had to have consumed Vast amounts of food to keep going, surely, Tim. I mean, we know that large whales, huge whales, just are constantly ingesting this diet of plankton. I wonder if these giant sharks were constantly hungry all the time. Was there enough food in the ocean to feed these creatures, I wonder? Well, that's a great question, Richard, Um, particularly given that we know that these enormous sharks were warm-blooded. So that, you know, again isotopic data suggests that the body temperature was about 40 degrees Celsius. So to keep... Uh, an animal that's 60 tonnes, keep that metabolism going at that rate to allow it to be warm-blooded requires an enormous amount of food. So, yeah, you know, and that food just is not available in the oceans today, that volume of food for a a viable population of these giant sharks. So they flourished on Earth for however many million years. What, 15 million years, I think, was your figure or something like that? Yeah, around about from between. Well, you know, their ancestors go way back to 50 million years ago, but we know from the shape of their teeth that those early ancestors were probably eating fish. It's only by 25-odd million years ago that the teeth take this very distinctive shape that suggests they're eating something else, these enormous great triangles. So for many millions of years these supergiant sharks were coursing their way through the world's oceans and then they disappeared. Yeah. What happened? Do we know? Oh, I wish I, I wish I knew. It's one of the questions. And we don't even know exactly when. It's so vexing, Richard, this question, because, you know, what we know of these sharks principally comes from their teeth. And their teeth are one of the most durable fossils in the fossil record. So you can imagine that these fossils may be buried in sediment, and then are washed out of that sediment and reburied in a new pile of sediment, which is a different age. And, and quite often the scientists will use microfossils in the sediment to try to date the teeth. So we keep on getting false young ages for these, these creatures. You know, what we do know is that they, they became extinct sometime between about four and a half million and two and a half million years ago, with, you know, the probably best guess about three and a half million, but we can't be sure. And, you know, that study that, that established those facts really only deals with a part of the Northern Hemisphere. We don't know what was happening in the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, these things could have lasted well after that that date. Could they have been beaten by competitors? Because 
You mentioned orcas in your book, and orcas hunt in packs, don't they? And perhaps a pack of small orcas, relatively small orcas, might have been more effective at taking down prey than one super large shark. What's your thinking on that? Look, it, it's possible. That, you know, the, the, the fossil record of the orcas is pretty poor. We've only got two fossils, really, that overlap with the giant shark. So, yes, it's possible, but we don't have the evidence to test that, that idea at the moment. I wonder how profoundly the extinction of Megalodon would have affected the ecology of the planet, the apex predator oh, disappears. Well, well, that's the great question, you know. And which way was it? Was it the chicken or the egg? Because, you know, we, we do know that at the time that the Megalodon shark was around, there was a second hypercarnivore around, this gigantic sperm whale, which was, again, you know, 17, 20 metres long, seemed to have eaten other sperm whales and other whales. So you've got two hypercarnivores coexisting in the ocean at the same time. So, you know, the, the productivity of that ocean must have been so much beyond the wildest dream of the craziest fantasy fisherman or fisher person that it, it's kind of incomprehensible, you know, such a productive ocean. You were talking about when you first found a megalodon tooth and you subsequently found teeth in Port Phillip Bay, which seems like a not a banal place to have found megalodon tooth, but, you know, where people go swimming off Bay Morris Beach or somewhere like that, finding, a, finding these giant ancient giant shark teeth there in the water. You said when you when you found your first, it of course thrilled you as a scientist, but the, the beauty of it exerted a certain kind of fascination. Do we know that if humans have long found these megalodon teeth to be a kind of a precious relic or a kind of jewel indeed? Yeah, look, that is a great question. And again, we have found fossil megalodon teeth in cave sites in Europe and in Aboriginal middens in Australia, indeed, and, and right across North America in Indian uh, Indigenous American sites. So th these things were traded, fossil sharks' teeth, and valued. As tools or as jewels, though, oh, we know? Because well, they, they'd make a pretty good axe head, wouldn't they, you'd imagine? They would. And, you know, you look at it and you think about those axe heads that date back three million years, you know, those very rough chopping tools that we see in Africa. What are they shaped like? They're shaped like, like a, a megalodon tooth. And, and you said the one you found could have given you a nasty cut if you weren't yeah, careful. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I just wonder, Richard, whether that early tool use, that early stone tool use might have been kind of stimulated by the discovery of these great shark's teeth because by then the shark would have been pretty newly extinct, you know. You just have a carcass wash up on a beach, you can grab a tooth out of it and that's your chopping tool. It makes you wonder what ancient people made of finding a shark's, a gigantic shark's tooth in the middle of a desert. Well, it must exactly. have blown their mind, like embedded in a rock too. It's not like anyone had left it there. No, it had been found there. What what stories could have been told to to have justified that ex existence? You write that medieval Europeans imagined that these teeth were gifts from space. That's right. Well, that, that idea was was really uh, first put out there by Pliny the Elder, who said... Oh, know, really? Yeah, right. yeah. He said they're kind of like meteorites. They come down from somewhere up above, you know. And, really? Uh, yes. I mean, they look like teeth. <laughs> I, know, I know. It but, looks like the teeth that's in your mouth, inside, like a, 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 a canine tooth. I don't get like it either, Richard. Why yeah. did it take people so long to understand these teeth were fossils? <laughs> Good question. But they didn't. And, um, you know, particularly Malta, you know, is very rich in fossil shark's teeth, and it became the centre of this trade during the Middle Ages of these fossil shark's teeth, which were believed to have incredible qualities. Like what qualities? Uh, they could detect poison. And, you know, during the Middle Ages, the Borgias and others, and there was a lot of poisoning going on. And um, you would, if you were went to a feast with the Medicis or the Borgias or the Doge of Venice, you know, it was wise to 
just dip a shark's tooth in your drink just to make sure. And you'd have to look at it then, see if it changed colour or it sweated. And if it did, don't have the drink <laughs> because, you know, it might, be, it might be poison. So they became very, very valuable. And, in fact, a trade built up that was so profitable that people started making fakes. And then a, a whole lot of scientific savants uh, arose to, to, to tell you how you could tell a fake tooth from a real one. <laughs> tell me how you explain in your book how, how the shark's teeth, uh, large and small, were mounted as table decorations at banquets. Well, they, eventually they were. They became part of these great candelabras which were passed around or, or put on a table beside the main feast so that you could, if you were in <laughs> doubt, put your drink, <laughs> dip one in your drink and <laughs> just make sure it was okay. Of course you'll need a shark's tooth for your... For your for your wine, it's like it was bezel. So could could they be used to uh, to uh, uh, to to cure poisons? If that's what I'm looking for, or to as an anti uh, anti poison or something like that? Uh, it was mostly detection. Right. They were believed to be very good as deodorants too. And I don't know the Knights of Malta you can imagine them shaving their underarms with fossil sharks. I, I have no idea, but they were considered some sort of uh, uh, anti anti perspirant and anti deodorant as well. You wrote that David Attenborough. Uh, has a collection of fossilised megalodon teeth from Malta. Tell me about him showing these teeth to you. Well, he told me... I, I went and visited him last year, and again, I just recently saw him again, but um, he told me that uh, in the 60s he would go and visit his dear friend Desmond Morris on the island of Malta, and he said, I would, I'd look for fossils with a pair of binoculars. And I said, what, David? <laughs> <laughs> enormous one. He said, yes, I'd just sit on the balcony and with a gin and tonic or whatever and uh, <laughs> I'd scan the surrounds and, and you could see these little caverns in the in the cliffs. He said, and, and if you spotted a cavern, well, then you'd go up there and sure enough, you'd find fossil shark's teeth in it. He said, they're everywhere on Malta. So anyway, he, he had a lovely collection and um, they, they're really, really great fossils. But, but, you know, it's funny, people have been collecting shark's teeth on Malta for many, many hundreds of years and uh, they're still there. You wrote that Thomas Jefferson had a megalodon tooth him, himself. I, I, there were no megalodon, of course, in the ocean at the, at the time. So I wonder if people were starting to twig at this point that these belonged to no ordinary shark by the 19th century. Well, that fossil shark's tooth that Jefferson collected is one of the earliest acquisitions of the, um, the Academy of Sciences in Philadelphia. Uh, which is now the museum in Philadelphia. So, and, and Jefferson had labelled it uh, Tooth of a Leviathan. So presumably still with that biblical sense of this, this perhaps being some ancient, something that swallowed Jonah, for example. Of course, in that age, the Bible was probably still the best document they had to their minds of what ancient times were, were like, I suppose, prehistoric times. Well, it was. You were still a century away from having Darwin, you know, accepted and uh, even Agassiz with the sense of time and Hutton with the, that deep sense of time. You mentioned an American tooth hunter named Vito Bertucci who met an untimely end in 2004. Such is the fascination that people, indeed the obsession, people have had for these giant prehistoric shark's teeth. Tell me how he met his his, his end, please. Well, well, Vito was one of, you know, several people every year who still fall victim to the Megalodon shark. <laughs> it still <laughs> managed to kill a few now. people. It does, yes. <laughs> a few so, people every year? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Vito was a, was a jeweller from Port Royal in North Carolina and uh, he became fascinated with these teeth, a bit like myself really, and um, he would dive uh, in old river channels um, 
in, in, in the Carolinas, looking for places where these teeth had accumulated. And uh, he was so fanatical that even during bad weather he'd go out and do this. And uh, he, he went out one day into this deep hole that he'd been told about. You know, the previous diver had been chased out of it by bull sharks and it was just considered too hazardous to go into. So Vito, not to be put off, went in, uh, dived there, and he didn't surface for about a week. Um, he, there, there was a big search undertaken. Um, finally, he was found floating many miles away. And when they found the body, uh, he had attached to his waist a bag uh, full of megalodon teeth. Oh, so he'd been down there. He'd been down into the hole. He'd Lost collected. track of time, maybe? Who knows? Who, look, it's, it's, this was probably 40 metres deep, this hole. He, he could have got nitrogen narcosis and had this incredible dream that the, the pool was paved with megalodon teeth. You know, he could, have, he could have been stuck under a log and struggled and died. We, we, he may have had a heart attack. We just don't know because of pretty strenuous conditions down there. But um, whatever happened, uh, Vito, uh, his collection was surfaced with him. But he was an extraordinary man. He made this gigantic set of jaws. He probably found more megalodon teeth than anyone ever in the history of, of our species. But these gigantic jaws with his teeth. You know, four of the teeth in that jaw were more than seven inches long, which is what, it's 18 centimetres uh, or so long. But but um, it's it's an amazing tribute to this man who actually gave his life in the end for that, uh, for that search. It said that the new Hollywood movement of the 19... 19- late 60s and 1970s, was essentially a group of young directors, who were young at the time anyway, that got hold of the old uh, old B-movies, if you like, and upgraded them and ma- made them more compelling using, using the cinema techniques they picked up from the Europeans. So that's why essentially Star Wars was Buck Rogers made for a modern age. <laughs> Indiana Jones is an old serial that's turned into something else. And monster movies were reinvented with Alien, Ridley Scott, and, of course, Jaws. Yeah. Jaws is essentially nonsensical, really. It's a, it's a, but it's it's a monster movie, but with a shark, which makes it so compelling. And you mentioned before the, the possibility that perhaps we have these kind of strange ancestral memories and terrors of being eaten alive by such creatures. During the movie Jaws, there's a moment when Robert Shaw's character Quint, the boat owner, tells the story of how he was aboard the USS Indianapolis, mm-hmm. a US warship. How true is that story? Well, that is a true story which has been incorporated into that movie. So, you know, the Indianapolis was sunk mid-ocean. Um, many, many survivors, I think several thousand survivors, um, but they were encountered by a group of a, sh- a shark species called the Oceanic White Tip. And the Oceanic White Tip is a slow-moving predator, really. it's You can imagine a species that's in the middle of the ocean that's just waiting for something like a floating whale. You know, the, obviously it's conserving its energy, that species. Um, but they came across this group of survivors and there was dead bodies and wounded people mixed with the, with the living. And they first started picking off the dead bodies and then the wounded. And, you know, then someone had opened a can of spam and have a feed and the smell of the meat would attract more sharks. And so there was hundreds of sharks taking many, many hundreds of people. And in the end, there was very few survivors. Um, So it must have been the most horrific experience of having, you know, probably over a thousand people eaten by sharks. You mentioned that this led the US Navy to try and develop a kind of shark repellent. And indeed, I remember the Batman movie from 1966 where Batman repels a shark with bat shark repellent spray, I think, or something like that. Was ever a repellent ever discovered that would work for a shark? 
Well, people seem to have faith in various versions <laughs> of them. Uh, some of the early ones have been tested and, and proved to be ineffective. Um, I think the best, you know, the the best uh, way of doing it is just to know your shark. I mean, some of the people who are best protected against sharks are Pacific Islanders who know the habits of sharks, know when they're likely to be about, can read the water and therefore stay safe. In Iceland, they have made, I don't know, they call it its national food, but... I, I don't know what you'd really call it. They have this thing called hakatla, as you'd well know. Hakatla is is a, a certain kind of shark meat treated in a certain way. It comes from the Greenland shark. And when I was told I had to eat it in Iceland, I asked what it was, and they said, well, we get a Greenland shark, uh, we bury it because its flesh is toxic, it's got some kind of toxin in it, and then we just put it under under the, under the earth for a while and we just leave it there to, to ferment. And I said, like, to, what, what do you mean, like, to rot? yes. Yes, it, it ferments, the shark meat ferments until it becomes gelatinous. And at that point it becomes edible. Uh, and it was, I was told I have to eat I said, what's it like? They said, oh, everyone says it's disgusting. But, but the, Iceland likes to fetishise it and call it its national food instead of, which is crazy because the Icelandic hot dog is a work of art, I think. But nonetheless, uh, do we hunt shark for food still in this modern age that we live in? Well, we do. Um, you know, particularly in the southern states of Australia, there's quite a... Uh, it seems to be a sustainable shark fishing industry, which in, in, involves flake, what we call flake. Um, what is flake anyway? Well, it's the flesh of a shark. It's supposed to be of um, these smaller dogfish, you know, that, that exist uh, off the coast of uh, southern Australia. But large sharks are sometimes put in there as well. Um, into the into the mix, so so it's shark meat basically. Not it's it's a lot better than your huckle. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, I, I grew up on it as a kid. We we ate it. I never knew what, never questioned what it was. I just thought it was fish and chips on a Friday. But um, yeah, it's still eaten. Anthony Bourdain, who has eaten cobra vile in Vietnam, tried huckle and he said it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever eaten in his entire life. I remember reading it. Didn't he say it tasted like old mattress infused with rotting fish or something? I don't know. Infused with urine, I think, was urine. his phrase. Yeah, that's it? right. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. when the, the reason it <laughs> has that taste, of course, is, it, is that the Greenland shark is full of ammonia, which is it's the toxin in it. Yeah, so very, it's very a, a starvation food. Iceland has suffered famine over the years and you, yeah, yeah, you eat yeah. what you can under the circumstances. Yeah. Going back to Jaws, you, tell me how your, your daughter Emma, who's now a grown-up mm. and who's a scientist and a writer like you who co-wrote mm. the book with you, about her first encounter with watching Jaws as a kid. Well, that was, you know, that was back in 1994 um, and we'd, I, we'd lost a house to a bushfire, which was a very traumatic experience, um, particularly for my daughter who was then very young, six or seven. And um, we neighbours offered to take us in, which was great because we didn't have a bed, so we stayed with them that night. And I, I was exhausted. I'd been fighting the fire all day and just I fell you know, fell into this deep sleep. I hadn't realised that my, my daughter was watching a movie with their children who were somewhat older and it was Jaws. So somehow I think the association of the loss of the fire and you know, all of that, along with this ter- horrific movie, far too old for her, really deeply traumatised her. And, um, you know, she, she wouldn't go to the the toilet there because we had a light in the toilet with those ribs in it that looked a bit like shark's jaws and she was right, jaws had come up through the toilet, you know. Um, she wouldn't use the little swimming pool oh. we had there because the tick, tick, tick of the cleaner sounded like the, the uh, music off jaws. Oh, well. dear. So it's really tough, really tough. Very terrible mistake I still regret. And what's it like looking at that movie now? Because the shark in that movie isn't after humans for food, really. No. It's no. after humans because it hates them. 
Exactly. And, and that's the thing. See, predators just don't act like that. No. Once you know about predators, they have to protect their body because they are involved in a dangerous trade and um, they're really careful. So they're not like Jaws. Um, but some parts of Jaws, you know, I still I can enjoy the, um, the cinematography of yeah, it, yeah. the way wild. they make the shark look big. <laughs> More recently, a movie has come out called uh, Meg, Yes. The Meg, yes. uh, where it turns out Megalodon has survived all these years in the depths of the ocean somewhere and it's come to uh, attack and kill us all. And yes. it, it, the trailers were awesome for it and it's such as the threat they even need Jason Statham to take care of the whole thing for <laughs> us. Are there, there are people who think, who suspect that it might still exist somewhere in the depths of the ocean, which, of course, is vastly and largely and almost entirely unknown to us even even to this day. Could it, in fact, be possible, or are we talking about yetis and Bigfoot here, Tim? It's yetis and Bigfoot. No, I'm sorry, Richard. I'm sorry to be blunt about it, but, but look, it, it, it's a lovely idea, a seductive idea, that somewhere in the depths of the oceans a giant shark will turn up. And, in fact, giant sharks have turned up from the depths of the ocean. From the depths? Yeah, Megamouth is, you know, this enormous great shark, filter-feeding shark, which was only discovered in the 1970s. You know, this is a big, big animal. Um, so it's, that sort of thing is possible, but for a large predator like Megalodon, you know, per, uh, the body temperature of 40 degrees, to be existing on, you know, deep-sea fish that are just a few centimetres long and mostly bone and jelly, no, I don't, I don't think so. It struck me as I was reading your book that to discover a Megalodon tooth like that and now with the aid of new technologies, we can infer so much just from that tooth mm. about when this creature possibly lived, what it even ate, how it died by the whale carcass nearby, how old it might have been from nearby vertebrae and the like. It seems to me when you find these things, it's not just a fossil find, it's almost like a grave because it contains information. There's all this information that's sort of imprinted on, in it, like almost like a headstone. Do you see it like that, or is that my, me being fanciful there? Too? No, it's it's to me, it's more like um, time travel. I take all of those clues and I then go back into that time somehow in my mind, and I can see it all there. I can see the bottom of the ocean, and uh, it's the most marvelous thing. And look, paleontology is such a gift. And can I, for your young listeners, can I just say that the best is yet to come? You know, with many things we see the heroic age gone, but for paleontology and for the discovery of that megalodon whole body fossil, that's yet to come. There's some young person out there in the world today, I'm convinced, who's going to make that discovery and, and really live the dream of understanding this most mysterious, gigantic predator. Has that experience led to a life of discovery for you and has it been a wonderful hedge against ennui or depression or or existential crises and the like? Has it protected you from that? Has it kept you happy, I suppose, is what I'm asking you? I, th I, th I think so, Richard, I do. Look, I've had a tough time at a you know, time when I was climate commissioner and so forth, but I've always had my science and, my, and that world, and that's, that's, it is sustaining. It's, it's really important. You read about young people making fossil discoveries in the paper every now and again, and I think, good on you. You, know, you will have that for the rest of your life. The joy of science. It's a wonderful thing. How wonderful it is to speak with you, Tim, and it's quite a joy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Tim Flannery's book, which is co-written with his daughter, Emma Flannery, is called Big Meg, the story of the largest and most mysterious predator that ever lived. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi there. When listening to Conversations, do you ever wish Richard Feidler was answering the questions? I'm James Valentine, and on my podcast, Headroom, The Belief Series, he does. Well, you and I, again, would be doing probably different things if, if it was just all about money. I worked in commercial radio a little while, and, and you go to bed at night going, oh, why am I doing this? What, what, what good is what That's a very mind? nice Audi, but why yeah. am I doing this? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know if Carl Sanderland's ever asked himself that no. question, but... Uh, the ABC is full of its frustrations, as, as we both know, but mm. I, I never go to bed worrying, what's the point of all this? Each week, I interview interesting Australians like Richard about their beliefs, their values, their ethics, the way they see the world and beyond. Find Headroom, the belief series on the ABC Listen app.